Hello and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the Financial Brand. According to a report by JP Morgan, close to 300 banks are planning to roll out Bitcoin trading on mobile apps in the first half of 2022. Another study finds that 44% of regional and global banks will offer crypto support by the end of the year. More than ever, the share of a consumer's wallet is at risk. The question is, how will banks and credit unions respond at a time when differentiation and deploying digital solutions is no longer optional? We are very fortunate to have Patrick Sells, Head of Banking Solutions for Navig, back on the Banking Transform podcast today. He is joined by Stephen Bohannon, Founder and Chief Strategy Officer at Alchemy. They will discuss the opportunities and challenges of traditional banks offering integrated Bitcoin solutions. Welcome to the show, Patrick and Stephen. You know, despite significant volatility experienced by cryptocurrencies over the past several weeks, the banking industry seems to be optimistic toward the potential of offering Bitcoin services to consumers. In the U.S. alone, more than 46 million Americans own Bitcoin today, representing more than 20% of adults. In addition, one in 10 Americans have invested in some form of cryptocurrency in the past year. So let's start with you, Patrick. As I mentioned, Bitcoin popularity is skyrocketing. What would you say is behind the accelerated growth, especially among what I'll call mainstream investors as opposed to the high income or the wealthy? Sure, and great to be on again with you, Jim. Thanks for having uh, Stephen and I. I think you know the best way to understand what's behind the popularity is to go back to what is money. I think it's a question that isn't one that's we obviously ask ourselves, um, but it's very helpful. And the reality is, is that anything can be money. It's just not everything is a very good form of money. And the way you understand how good of a form of money something is, is by a three-prong test that one looks at it as a store of value, second, as a means of accounting, and third, as a mode of exchange. So let's take a Monet painting, for example. As a store of value, it would score 10 out of 10 because there's only there's a finite amount of them. And no matter how much any of us want more water lilies, it doesn't exist. But as a means of accounting, it would score like a one out of 10. What are you supposed to do when you order your coffee? Well, that will be one thirteenth millionth of uh, water lilies. It doesn't work well. As a mode of exchange, again, here, what are you supposed to do? Cut up the Monet. It doesn't score very well. So that's why most people don't use Monets as a form of money. But now let's look to gold, which has been the dominant form of good money for much of human history. When we look at it as a store of value, it scores pretty well. You know, the annual supply of gold only increases by about 2% per year. As a means of accounting, it wouldn't score all that well. We don't have that many increments. We have coins and bars. Um, and as a mode of exchange, it would score very poorly, especially in today's globally connected world. What are you supposed to do? Like lug around a, a bag or a vault with gold everywhere you go and make those exchanges. And so part of what happened in human history as we became more connected and began traveling, we realized that we needed a different um, form factor. But and that's when fiat came to be and said, hey, you can leave my I can leave my gold at this bank and Stephen can leave his gold at this bank. And I can have this piece of paper that represents that. And now it's much easier as a mode of exchange. And so now if you turn to Bitcoin and you run it through that same test, as a store of value, Bitcoin would score a 10 out of 10. There can only be 21 million. It's finite. 
as a means of accounting, every Bitcoin is divisible by a million units. Think about that compared to the US dollar. We have 15 or 16 increments, not nearly the same as we do with Bitcoin. And as a mode of exchange, Bitcoin would score 10 out of 10 as well. Two people on the other side of the earth with flip phones can send a dollar or a billion dollars back and forth from to each other. And so what it comes down to is when you think about, you know, what's the best form of money? And then you go back through that exercise, you realize how Bitcoin is the best form of money that has been in existence. And you see that in countries here in America, but also third world countries like El Salvador. And it's why they've adopted it as a form of Tinder. Um, And so I think there's just a broader awareness and recognition of money and thinking about Bitcoin as money, but also what I know of money being dollars uh, and how do those score and people choosing to say, I'm going to store my wealth or my money in a different form factor being Bitcoin. And then the last comment is, is that Bitcoin is not only this new, better form of money, it's built on network theory. And the best way to think about what's happening here is, I think, look at an analogy of Airbnb. You know, when it first came out, if Stephen and I wanted to go on a trip to the Bahamas, maybe there was one option available. And so we didn't do it. But if we go now, there's 100 options available. And as the network, every user who gets added to the network, the network becomes more valuable. And that's why Airbnb is what it is or Uber is what it is. And there's this inherent value increase in the network every time someone chooses to opt into it. So, Patrick, with NIDIC and also the banks and credit unions that are, are working with crypto and, and Bitcoin right now, how are they keeping pace with the popularity in terms of offering related products and services? You know, I think that's where partnerships like Alchemy are, um, are really changing the game for the industry. You know, if you're a bank or a credit union, you want to do something new you're largely dependent on your technology provider for that user experience or that user interface or the capability. And that's not easily done without the cooperation of your partners. And so as companies like Alchemy have made the NIDIG solution, for example, available, now it takes 30 days for a bank or a credit union to be able to offer buy, sell, hold the way that fintechs like Cash App or PayPal can. And so I think the industry is quickly moving to say, hey, how do we get kind of the a V1 product out there, which is buy, sell, hold, but then recognizing there's so much more that they can do from Bitcoin rewards to lending dollars secured by Bitcoin, et cetera. Um, and so I think 2022 will really be the year we see the, the industry completely change in terms of Bitcoin and banking and credit unions. Great. You know, Stephen at Alchemy, you know, you're, you see the banks and credit unions continually transform and digitally transform what they're trying to offer. Why do you believe more mid-tier financial institutions are deciding to offer Bitcoin? And what prompted Alchemy to, to partner with NIDIG to offer these services? Well, I think that the, the you know, as far as what's prompting them to kind of get involved is the same thing that prompts them with kind of any other product that they decide to get involved in, whether it be a certain type of a loan or another deposit product or, uh, you know, anything else. It's, it's, it's the desire to remain relevant and therefore competitive uh, within the market. I mean, we've went from what, 30,000 financial institutions 40 years ago to 20,000 20 years ago to 10,000 now. And and obviously there's a, a lot of people that don't exist anymore for their consolidation. You really have to grow and you have to remain relevant if you want to be able to be successful in this market. So I think it's a survival instinct that ultimately, uh, you know, really brings them to these types of uh, opportunities and, and with new products, new instruments, whatever it happens to be. 
Um, you also have kind of other headwinds in the market. Uh, you look at uh, obviously where, uh, you know, overdraft and SF income is going to be going, which may be to zero. Uh, you look at uh, as as the um, consolidation happens in the financial institution industry, there's going to be more and more of them that are crossing that 10 billion threshold, that magical 10 billion threshold to see a huge haircut to their interchange revenue. Uh, and then, and meanwhile, still, and obviously we, we have the prospect of raising rates over the next uh, year or two, but but they're not there yet. And so they're still dealing with obviously very, very small interest rate spreads as well. So I think this kind of desire to have uh, non-interest income or fee income, uh, any sort of income they can get related to payment processing, things like that. So there's a lot, a lot of, uh, you know, there's kind of some macro reasons just financially why you would look to uh, have more products to be able to drive more fee income. Uh, but then I think that the, the ultimate survival instinct is around relevancy. Um, in terms of why we looked at NIDIG to do it, I, I think that, you know, there's there's so much innovation that's happening in the fintech space. There was something like, I read an article, maybe it was a few weeks ago, that it was something like 130 billion or something that had been invested into fintech last year. Uh, it's just a crazy amount of, uh, of investment that's happening there. And so, and what we see is that really finance as we know it, traditional finance is really changing. Uh, you know, think about, think about, uh, Companies like Square or you know PayPal, Venmo, you know whatever, and what you see is that the the market responding to it, right? Like, so then the market comes out and says, "Well, we've got Zelle," uh, and then the Fed say, "Well, we're going to have Fed now," and then of course now Fed is talking about having a digital currency, right? So you see kind of the traditional uh, market players trying to respond to kind of the innovators in this space, and it's because of so much fuel, you know, in the form of capital that's been poured into the fintech industry uh, over that amount of time. But the thing that generally slows them down is that they are insured and therefore regulated financial institutions. And so um, it's not that there hasn't been crypto offerings out there that we could potentially technically plug into. I think one of the main reasons that we went with NIDIG is that they had really just done the legwork. They had done the legwork of working through all the regulators with all the various states and at the national level. And because we knew that was going to be the primary limiter to being able to kind of innovate in this way was the regulators. <laughs> and and so I think that, and by the way, we've been approached by several other kind of crypto-ish offerings of, hey, why don't you plug this in and allow people to buy and sell various crypto offerings? And it really kind of came back, you know, time and time again, well, what do the regulators say about this? And they said, well, we're not really talking to the regulators. And like, well, then we don't want to go, you know, spin our wheels working on this. So the fact that NIDIG was able to come in and say, we've done the legwork, we've met with all the various states, we've met all the various kind of at, at, national, at the national level, the various regulators. It's one of the reasons we only offer Bitcoin today as opposed to all the other cryptos that are available. Um, that for us uh, really kind of gave us the assurance that the investment that we would put into this would not be wasted and to be something that we could actually take with confidence to our customers and be able to offer it. Well, it's interesting. You talk about confidence. And one of the things I know about Alchemy is you really work with your financial institutions to make it so that you can help them innovate at speed. One of the benefits of using third-party providers is that they know the marketplace. They have tested in different institutions. They're able to almost act as the GPS of, of financial services where you can help them avoid pitfalls that other organizations have had or streamline operations in areas that they aren't familiar with. But this is very much the same reason why you part with NIDIC. It's almost like a third-party provider provide, partnering with a fintech firm that can streamline the operation. I mean, what you just said, to, to avoid all the pitfalls, to not cover ground that's already been covered, 
really provides a benefit to you, but also to your clients, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, speed to market, right? Really is the key. Because if if you were to kind of make your checklist of all the things that you would have to do before you go and offer this, uh, it'd be a very long checklist. Uh, and and so being able to have kind of a package solution and, and and leveraging the Finder's Authority, which by the way, there's lots of been products that have been offered through Finder's Authority, where you know obviously institutions that are, aren't aren't broker dealers, uh, maybe they're not insurance providers, whatever, but they've been offering services that are kind of pre-packaged with people who are specialists in that area for a while now. So it's not a new concept really entirely at all. Uh, but if you can imagine this, the, 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 the concept of cryptocurrency now, well, what do we have to do? You know, do we have to hire? Well, one thing's and what we can talk about hiring later, make sure to ask me about that. But when you think about there's generally a lack of knowledge and skill and expertise within a financial institution as it relates to crypto. I mean, if you were just go and just pull their employees, what do you know about crypto? Uh, you know, I, I, you would probably have a lot of different answers that maybe many of them would not necessarily be well educated. And so these are all kind of barriers to offering this type of a service. So being able to bring in this kind of a, a packaged expert that can come in, offer a product, say we can we can get rid of the risk for you. We've already cleared all the stuff with the regulators. We, we, we'll, we'll take care of all this. And all we need is to partner with the digital banking providers to create a user experience to allow you to access your deposit accounts that are on the core, be able to transfer that money. Uh, but we, we kind of take care of everything from there. It really is a great solution for these financial institutions who otherwise would probably view this as a very daunting task to be able to get this spun up and to be able to offer a service like this. Yeah. And, and Patrick, from a Nidic perspective, what has your research found around the consumer's desire to use a traditional bank or credit union towards Bitcoin offerings or towards trading in Bitcoin? Yeah, you know, Jim, it's a good question. I think the data showed two things that, you know, as you mentioned, about one out of five Americans own Bitcoin today, but the majority of them prefer, or 80% preferred to be able to access it through their existing bank or credit union relationship. And, you know, that I think some people may find that um, hard to believe or feels counterintuitive, but the reality is, and it goes back to kind of my description about money, if I see Bitcoin as a financial asset that I own or money that I have, I want to be able to take advantage of the trust and strength and the relationships I have today with the people who custody my money in the form of paper or fiat. And I feel the same way about my money as Bitcoin. And I think in particular, not only do so many Americans who own Bitcoin prefer that, what I get excited about as someone who loves both banking and Bitcoin is when you go to the four out of five Americans who don't own Bitcoin, what was the most probably the, the biggest stat that we saw in our consumer research was that over half of them would if they could through their bank or their credit union. In other words, it's not a Bitcoin issue. It's an access issue. And it goes back to this point around, hey, especially with something so new, actually people and businesses alike find a lot of comfort in knowing that their bank or credit union is playing a leading role here because they trust those institutions. Yeah. And, and Patrick, I'll just add on to that. We, we've actually seen evidence of that thing. I, I don't know if whether the number is 50% or not. You know, obviously you never know in those surveys that people say, would you, if this was available, who knows, right? Uh, but I will tell you, so whenever uh, Idaho Central, which is one of our, uh, really one of our great uh, partners at Alchemy, 
uh, rolled this out, uh, they, they shared with us a lot of the verbatims that they got as part of their beta, uh, you know, kind of a pilot or a, a launch of this. And I, I saw consistently within the verbatims of the feedback of people saying, thank you for offering this for one. N- number two, I, I read a lot about this, heard a lot about it, but was kind of one, either scared or didn't want to go through the process of opening up a, an account with Coinbase or someone else to do it. And the fact that it was so easy to go and do it, it made me feel comfortable and, and like, yay, now I own some crypto, right? So I do think there is a pent up demand among people that are maybe otherwise intimidated by kind of what crypto is, because of course, the, our entire lifetimes we've been, you know, uh, you know, of course, in the, I guess, but was it before Nixon, or I guess, uh, you know, it was all the gold standard. But then even after that, we, we've always understood the American dollar, right, is like that, that, that's what you can count on. So this whole idea of crypto is a bit confusing, intimidating, uh, you know, for grandparents, as things their grandkids talk about, but it's kind of confusing to them. And so I think that, 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 that Patrick's right, I don't know if the number's 50% or what, what it is, but uh, we definitely saw that in verbatim feedback on what they liked about the experience. And it was that I was intimidated and scared before. You made it easy. I already trust you. And so I went in and did it. And now, hey, I'm a holder. And so then, of course, once they do that and they didn't get burned by it, per se, in other words, it was something that they felt comfortable with. Well, then now that person comes back for the next thing that now they can offer around crypto because they now feel educated by it. And they feel like, hey, um, I'm, I'm, I'm with the times now, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we, there, there was a lot of great verbatims that came out of that uh, that that beta pilot um, group. And there's, I think it was around a thousand uh, users that were using it. And uh, we, we're obviously using it even to improve the product even further. And, and Patrick, you know, we talked a little bit about the feed, but what are the financial and non-financial benefits of offering Bitcoin trading and custodial services at a traditional financial institution? Yeah, so I think the biggest is that they get to partake in the transaction fee. So whenever Bitcoin or any cryptocurrencies bought or sold, there's typically a 2 to 10% transaction fee being charged today in the retail market. Um, and that's the dominant way companies like Coinbase or other crypto exchanges generate their revenue. And for a bank or a credit union, they can now earn those transaction fees in the form of non-interest income. And, you know, Stephen highlighted this earlier, especially in the NIM environment we've been living in, that's amazing. Um, And it's a meaningful source of revenue, enough to more than compensate for the cost of making uh, Bitcoin available. Um, And so it's still, you know, we expect that the average FI will earn about $40 of net profit every year on an active customer. I think in terms of the the non-financial benefits, it's a couplefold. Um, we already see this when we look at the mobile apps of the partners that are live with us, um, like ICCU, is that they see increased app engagement. You know, people think about it, right? You want to log in and see the price of Bitcoin. It's awesome if you can open up your ICCU mobile app and see the price of Bitcoin. You want to see what's happening. And so there's a lot of benefit there. And we've heard stories of people already having grown their deposit relationships at an FI since they made Bitcoin available or they've bought additional loan products. And so, again, you're just able to stay top of mind, which I think is very important for existing FIs as they continue to compete with fintechs and all of the digital marketing that they are are doing. I think the other benefit is culturally. This has been something I've loved hearing is I think many of us in the bank and credit union industry feel like we're not the most innovative at times. And all of a sudden when now I, hey, I've got Bitcoin, (laughs) like, wow, 
holy crap, I have Bitcoin available and watching employees respond to that and react to that and just kind of infuse energy in life, um, I think is another, you know, kind of soft benefit that the FI uh, gets. You know, Stephen, you you mentioned that you referenced and you asked me to ask you about it, so I'm going to do it now. You know, one of the components of this is that as you mentioned, that that most people are really confused by what Bitcoin is, the benefits, the risks, you know, is it an investment or is it a speculative? You know, how are you seeing financial institutions educate their employees around the basics of Bitcoin, but also the the people that are actually doing the transactions, the the deeper understanding of the of the service? Well, I, I think that's one of the biggest problems. I don't see them doing it. Um, and, and it's it's not really happening, and 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 probably because there's not as much comfort and education level at the executive leadership and at the board level, and so it's not being kind of mandated to have this kind of instructional, um, you know, kind of teaching, I guess, uh, at, at at the frontline level, uh, which is which is a shame, uh, quite honestly. And I think that's one of the things that I really like about. And th- th- there are there are a lot more o- opportunities than what what is offered through the the United product within our within the solution they're offering the digital banking providers. Obviously, a lot more cryptocurrencies. There's uh, kind of lending. There, there's there's all, all trading on e- now Bitcoin ET- or uh, crypto ETFs and all kinds of stuff. And I would say that there is a huge difference between what's available in the market and then the knowledge of it with by your typical. Um, employee of a banker or, or like the employee of a traditional financial institution. It, it, it's staggering how different it is. Um, I, I had read an article, I guess it was a couple months back, and just talking about how it was funny how the big banks for years, ultimately, because they saw this kind of control slipping away, were, were trying to create all this FUD around cryptocurrency and calling it, you know, a fraud and, you know, it's, it's, it's a ripoff and all these things. And then once they realized uh, it was, it was going to happen, whether they were with it or not, they switched quickly. And it was something like, it was like the, the major banks, there was like a thousand new cryptocurrency positions that were created and then hired for over the last three years, right? I don't see the same tor- type of thing happening in the regional and community financial institutions, unfortunately. Uh, and 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 so I think that the NIDIG offering is a good first step, but I, I would say that these institutions need to leverage that then as a way to start educating their employee base, just like they educate them about what a credit card versus a mortgage versus a deposit account versus a checking account versus a CD and anything else. They need to be educating them on cryptocurrency, start with a NIDIG product, but there's got to be that kind of level of comfort. Like today, if you were to walk into our customers who offer that, and I don't know, I, I haven't checked on this with uh, ICCU, but but probably if you walked up to the teller there and said, hey, I heard this, they may say, yeah, that's something you got to do on our mobile app, but we don't really kind of know a lot about that in the branch, right? I, I don't know that. So I, I mean, I, I could get a call from Kent Orham or something saying, Stephen, that's not right. But I'm just saying, I'm not seeing that as much where people are saying, look, we got to hire some specialists. And, and when you look at that, it's really, it's really ironic too, right? Because you, we've seen like in the credit union space as an example, they've really started to get more into business banking, right? Some of them are buying banks. Some of them are hiring. Uh, commercial bankers from banks because they're saying, look, I don't have this expertise internally. And so I need to hire this uh, externally to come in here because this is going to be a key part of what we offer going forward. And so I've got to kind of attract the talent. I don't see them yet doing that with cryptocurrency. And I think they're behind the curve because we actually do see the big banks doing that. And they started with their, obviously they're investing in their private wealth clients. They're starting to roll that out to their retail clients. But I would say they're more prepared for it and so the challenge I would give probably to our customers and the regional community financial institutions in general is like, don't wait until it's too late. 
uh, and make this, it's a cool feature that you can offer through your app, but it really needs to be more ingrained and embedded throughout your organization that people know about these products and understand them and can have a conversation with uh, their uh, customers and their members about these types of things. And a related subject, and we talk about the education of the employees, we also have to talk about the education of the regulators. Um, they're kind of playing catch up also with regards to issues of transparency and safety. What measures can the financial institutions take to protect themselves against non-regulated digital currencies and, and maybe doing something wrong? So, Jim, you know, I think a couple of comments here, and I think this is something we've been very focused on. Like if you logged into the ICCU app or another great partner of Alchemy's and NIDIG's is uh, Star Community Bank. What the the consumer see is educational material, like what's Bitcoin 101 and what's Bitcoin mining. And I do think to that very conversation, there needs to be a lot of education happening at both the consumer level and the staff level. And that is something that I think we are, you know, we, we spend a lot of time trying to do and working with Alchemy on how do we continue to make that more and more robust. So I think I think my comment there is we are, I think we all are aware of the need for it and push and, and su- support that. From a, the regulator's perspective, look, I think there's this misunderstanding that crypto isn't regulated. And the reality is, is anything that involves money in this country will ultimately fit inside of a very well-established uh, legal framework of either being a security, a commodity, or tender. And it's obviously not tender. That's only what the central bank prints. And so then what happens, though, is because some fundamental attributes have been rearranged because of the technology, it didn't make it readily apparent. Wait, is this a commodity or is this a security? And I think, frankly, you know, from the regulator's perspective, if I look at it globally over the last 10 years, there you've got to go focus on the things that are the biggest problems in the world. Not You can't focus on every problem. And as crypto got bigger and bigger as an industry, I think we have seen the regulators very quickly begin to step in and to say, we got to stop this. We need to think about it like this. Even the most recent news, uh, you know, in the crypto space with the SEC is another example of that. Um, But I think what's important for financial institutions and, you know, I came from a community bank before joining NYDIG and I had a very pretty good grasp on banking regulations, but I was pretty ignorant on securities and commodities law. It just wasn't something that I understood because I hadn't been exposed to it. And as I got here and I began to realize, hey, there's actually a lot of similarities in banking regs to commodities and securities, but there are also differences. And until you have that framework installed or that knowledge, it's really hard to know how to look at anything and say, isn't this just technology? Well, no, 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 it's not technology. Um, And that's the thing I think that's really important for FIs to do is to say, hey, just because something's new and customers may be talking about it or it's shiny, not all cryptos are the same. And I need to figure out or find someone who can help me think about what is that fundamentally. You know, take Bitcoin. It's why we only make Bitcoin available on the Alchemy platform. There's only two, I think cryptos that have been commented on by the regulators as to what it is. Bitcoin's a commodity, so it's regulated by the CFTC, just like lumber and all other commodities. And then uh, XRP, the SEC has sued and said that's a security. Um, And in the absence of that, you know, it's not been defined. That doesn't mean it won't be. 
and or it shouldn't be. It's just there's got to be kind of a, a a maturation happen across all of the regulators as they say, okay, what is this and where does it belong? And I think as an FI, you just need to, as we know, inside of safety and soundness framework is to be cautious and intentional in what we go after. Um, we don't need to be the first ones out to do something. That's not how banks do it, right? Uh, but I think it's the recognition that there's another legal framework that they need to come to understand at some level to really be able to understand crypto. And what's funny when you talk about the regulators, um, uh, it, it's it's funny is that in in um, I don't know what the right word is uh, maybe in 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 uh, in light in writing and documentation and, and from a legal perspective, it seems like they're caught up, but in their knowledge, they're actually behind. <laughs> so uh, here, here's the example. So uh, Star Financial Bank, which uh, which Patrick mentioned, you know, they were early early adopter of this, and as they 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 went through obviously the state of Indiana, they got they got their uh, got their approval to kind of do this. And then, and so everyone says, okay, well, technically, yes, you can do this. According to the regulations, you can do this. And then uh, I, I had a call with uh, when their their uh, their folks over there, she told me, she said, wow, I just got off a call. This was like two weeks after they rolled it out or something. I just got off a call. They said, I had more regulators on that conference call than we've been in 20 years, state, federal, everything. And they're just asking us lots of questions. Okay, how does this work again? And so what happens if this? And what happens if that? And so it was like just going through all the various risks, ensuring that they had done their due diligence, that they had accounted for all the risks. And so then they said, okay, great. And I think that she said, then they followed up and said, hey, we're probably going to follow up with you as we have more questions. So I think what you're seeing is all the regulatory bodies are still trying to get their ducks in a row and, and down to the individual auditor or regulator themselves, really that, that same kind of uh, education we talk about at the bank employee level, it needs to happen across the regulatory agencies level as well. And so they're kind of saying like, technically it you can do it, but gosh, we just don't know enough to give, like what, what about all the nuance which we know is involved in regulation, right? And so they're not, I don't think they feel educated enough and there's not enough kind of, um, uh, you know, history. There's not a, there not been enough mistakes made, I guess, if you will, to really kind of inform a lot of the guidance that would be given that would be nuanced, regardless of what the regs themselves are written in black and white. So. Uh, I think this will continue to happen. By the way, we took all that kind of that feedback, the Q&A session that they gave there, and we shared that with some of our other customers that are rolling that out so that they're prepared. Say, these are likely the questions you're going to get when you start to roll these things out and make sure you've got good answers for them and that you've actually done the work uh, to uh, to evaluate this. So uh, it, it is kind of a mixed bag in terms of what the law actually says versus the 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 boots on the ground regulator auditor whatever that uh, that actually it feels comfortable with it and and understands it. We talked about the regulators and and some lack of clarity in that sense. Is that the major hurdle you have? You're reaching out to your financial institution partners that trust you on everything they do inherently. Is that the major hesitancy that organizations have around? going forward with offering Bitcoin as a as a service? And secondly, and related to that, how important is speed of implementation right now to be able to get ahead of the curve as opposed to playing catch up? Um, gosh, the, the, so there's a, the, the first question, uh, it, it is a mixed bag. So I, I don't know that I have enough data to say what the primary kind of uh, inhibitor is to speed of mass adoption. Um, I'll give you just some of anecdotally what I've heard across the board. What, some of it is 
no different than what we would hear with kind of any other product or any other heck digital banking feature, which is we don't want to be first, right? So like, let's let a certain group of pioneers kind of go out there, learn some of the lessons early, and we'll be our quote fast follower, right? So there are certain institutions, I would say culturally, that's how they are. They've been that way with everything. And so they're definitely going to be like that with Bitcoin. (laughs) Uh, So I I think, so I don't really look at that um, as as any different than just kind of the nature of the culture of the institution, generally the leadership and the, the, the board executive leadership of the, of the financial institution. Um, the, the other one that we see is um, there is, this is a very small number, there is kind of this debate around kind of, I don't know, it's almost like a mor- uh, morality issue, uh, kind of, well, what happens, like, is, isn't our job as the financial institution to, quote, protect um, our uneducated customers and members from making a mistake, Right. And so that that that's that's where they are now. These are the same people that will allow them to obviously uh, swipe their card at a casino and, and t- gladly take the interchange on that. Um, they're, they're, these are the same folks that offer uh, investing in many cases through uh, partner broker dealers of theirs that they are able to go and invest in stocks or short stocks or whatever. But for whatever reason that they kind of have this thing of like, is, is this, this a high risk thing? And if and if we offer it, are we kind of endorsing it? And then therefore, do we feel comfortable endorsing it? Right. And so I, I, I do think you, you you see that playing out a little bit. I, and I know specifically of a couple of our customers of that who are having that argument internally and there's not agreement on it, but it is something where people are kind of getting over this idea of, are we in essence kind of endorsing gambling is, is, is part of it. Um, and then, uh, and then, and then the third category I would put it in is and probably the most common. So this is the one I would kind of settle on if I'd said the most common is strictly just the, the the comfort and confidence that they know enough about it to feel like they can offer it. And I think that's really what it comes down to. Uh, the majority of them, like I said, you look around the room and say, "Well, who's going to be our internal expert on this?" And everyone, everyone just says, "Not me." <laughs> so I, I think that. Again, like I said, I, I view it very much like um, uh, very much like offering commercial banking services uh, or business banking services. You know, if you've been a retail-focused financial institution for a long time, you say, "Hey, we want to have a business banking division. We want to start offering cash management services." And you look around and say, "Well, who who's gonna who's gonna tell us what we should offer and what the what the what the rules are and and what it's not me, not me, right?" So so I think it's really an educate a knowledge problem, kind of a knowledge gap that exists within the institution. And obviously, when you have more knowledge, you feel more confident. And the more confident you feel, the more things that you do. And so I think that that. That's probably the number one thing probably keeping uh, seen from mass adoption. And they're actually kind of being dragged along because of the FOMO, right? Uh, you know, whether it be the fear of missing out or the fear of irrelevancy. Uh, but, it, but hey, that may be as good as a, a, as a reason or motivator as any. Uh, sometimes, uh, again, survival instinct sometimes, uh, you know, makes people kind of push outside their comfort zone. And I think that's what we're going to see here. What, what we're really excited about are some of these kind of early numbers that are coming out of some uh, of the... Um, uh, of the kind of the beta groups and things like that and the amount of data uh, dollar flow, the amount of adoption of the people that are actually going into it and 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 now buying some Bitcoin. Um, I will tell you this, Jim, that that everyone agrees that that deposit leakage is a major problem as it relates to crypto. I, I had a conversation with one of our customers that um, they're, they're, they're north of 10 billion, but not too far north of 10 billion. And, uh, they said, Stephen, we did it. We did a, uh, analysis, uh, last month of how much money was flowing out to the various kind of crypto providers, whether it be, you know, Coinbase and others. And they says $40 million just last month. And it's not that it's 
that they necessarily that there's $40 million being bought in crypto. But what's happening is people are parking their assets in a place that give them the ability so that when Bitcoin dips the next time, they can quickly buy it, right? And so that even if it's just held, holding there, and, and, and we know that Coinbase and others, that's their entire um, uh, motive is, okay, let's get you holding that there. It might not all be in crypto, but now I'm going to offer you a savings account with a high rate of return, right? So once I get you in the door and get you to park some assets so you can be opportunistic around the rise and fall of crypto, now I can start offering you these traditional banking services. And boy, it is a it is a foot in the door. And it's something that if 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 I just hope that our customers and, and, and the regional institutions in general don't wait till it's too late. That's interesting because I, I was talking to some bankers last week at a conference and they said, you know, everybody talks about the fact that the savings rate went up so greatly uh, at the beginning of the government uh, funding and the government benefits and all that. But people did not look behind the scenes to say, oh, how much did that float out to alternative service providers? In other words, yes, our savings rate went up, but how much did that stayed and where did the money go? And they said they had never seen so much money going toward alternative financial instru- instruments than during that period. And so we sometimes get a comfort level that is fictitious because we've never measured it enough. And, you know, Patrick, from your perspective, what do you recommend the financial institutions do today? What What's the first step? What should they do right now? Yeah, and I, I can't help but to that very comment, you know, going back to this, what is money? If we think about the U.S. dollar through those same three uh, lenses as a store of value, it's really like a zero on a score because there's an infinite amount of it that can be printed, right? It was only two years ago we saw the first trillion dollar plan now, I think there's been eight or nine trillion dollar plans proposed. Um, and in that regard, it's much more like tulips than any other form of money we've looked at. Um, and that's, again, part of what's happening is not just in this country, but around the world. There's over a billion people living in hyperinflation and realizing that they need a form of money that scores much better as a store of value. Um, and I do think we saw just as the government printed a ton of money, that money flowed into a ton of spots. I think the thing that financial institutions need to do is to recognize that, you know, this isn't just another technology. This is more like another language, right? It's easy to be able to say a few words in French or Spanish, but if I actually want to be able to have a conversation with someone who's a fluent speaker, I got to spend real time here to understand it. And that means I got to get off of, you know, ignoring tweets or news articles and really begin my own journey of understanding what is happening here. Because whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or blockchain, what all of that represents, and, you know, we have views as to what we think, but it's also early days, this technology fundamentally is going to change every part of the world. We know it much the way the Internet did 30, 40 years ago. And I have, to, I can't ignore it, right? And so I think it starts with a recognition and a, hey, I'm in a hunger to go learn, a curiosity to say maybe things I've always assumed are wrong. And I think that's, that's true at a, at, a, at a meta level, right? I think then, and there have been many, you know, I know of a thousand institutions last year who in many ways began that process. I think now what it, there's also the ability to say because of the work that Alchemy has done, for example, to say, hey, I don't just have to have, you know, educational seminars. I can actually begin to roll out products. I can begin to talk to my regulators. I can begin to tell my customers, and this is possible and this is coming. 
Um, and so it's really just wherever you are recognizing that I can take another step forward, that may be to start your education or maybe to say, hey, Alchemy, I want to go live. I would say that the other thing that's really uh, interesting, you talk about a different language and we're seeing this because it happens in the in the mindset as well as the the, the underlying uh, the technology underpinning that's there is in, in banking today, we very much have this Monday to Friday, obviously, unless there's a holiday, but we have this idea of a kind of a banking week, and then there's a banking day, and your balance has changed once a day, or uh, for even in the credit union world where they've had online real-time for a while, there's still like a, a transaction had to post. That's what affects your balance. Uh, there's none of this idea of true real-time, uh, 24 by 7 by 365, right? And so now, this is one of the interesting things is, you know, we now, uh, within the app, you know, you've got your Bitcoin balance that is changes every second. <laughs> and and this is like a whole different mindset around like oh it's bitcoin's open on saturday and sunday and president's day and and everything at 24 hours a day um and i and i think it's a, it's a good thing right because really the, the world is becoming global. The world is becoming 24 by 7. The world is becoming real time. But I will just tell you that that is not the way that the, the traditional banking industry measures events. It is a very much a, a daily type thing. And so we we already had to do some things within our technology to account for this difference, right? Like whenever you log in Friday, well, obviously I pull your balances from what happened on Thursday night when you batch posted. But, you know, there is no kind of like the, the core doesn't go into update mode and, and batch posting mode and things like that with Bitcoin. It's happening consistently all the time. So I think there's also a, a still a disconnect in the way that we do service for it and, and everything else and, and what people expect around it. It is much more like what you think of in the e-commerce world of real time all the time and not much of and not when you think about the traditional deposit balance or loan balance of which updates kind of no more than once a day generally uh and and that's only monday through friday and that's that's not a holiday so this this new world that's why i said hiring people that understand crypto very important and when they come into this and say if we're going to be in the crypto business we also have to look at how that really is juxtaposed against our traditional way of thinking about how balances and transactions update and kind of this new world of 24 by 7 so that's another uh, i'd say educational thing they're going to have to get comfortable with uh, as they offer this but Again, the good thing is that's where the that's where the world is moving anyway uh, to real time, and so this is just a, a, a way to dip your toe in the water a little further to get to that spot. Gentlemen, I thank you so much for being on the show today. You know, we we've learned a lot. We're still learning as we go along. You know, as I mentioned, Patrick was on the show last August. A lot's happened since then, and I I think this is a great example of the innovation and transformation of the the banking industry. But it also highlights the need to work with partners that really understand where the business is going. It doesn't matter if you're looking at faster ways to open a new checking account or new ways to do lending or, or offering Bitcoin services. You can't build it from within. In fact, the biggest organizations aren't building it from within. They're using partners. This is a great example of not only from an educational perspective, but really being able to kick the tires and see how it works and see how it can work. And with partners that you can trust and Alchemy and, and NIDIG are two organizations that really are on the, on the cutting edge of this, but realize that the difference between cutting edge and bleeding edge is narrowed significantly. It no longer is to the benefit to be, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna test, I'm gonna see what happens and I'll, I'll be a fast follower. The reality is in banking, there's no fast, but there's a whole lot of followers and we need to start rethinking the way we look at innovation. Again, gentlemen, thanks so much for being on the show today. Appreciate having you. Thank you, Jim. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you, Jim. 
Thanks for listening to Banking Transformed. Today's the top five banking podcasts in the winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. I appreciate the support you have provided since we started this endeavor. If you enjoy our show, please be sure to provide a review on your favorite podcast platform. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the research you're doing on the digital banking report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, audio engineer, Sean Roe Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Maroos. Until next time, remember, just because you don't understand something doesn't mean that it's nonsense or that you can ignore it. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.